From WBEZ Chicago, it's This American Life, distributed by Public Radio International. I'm Ira Glass. And I'm coming to you today to say something that I've never had to say on our program. Two months ago, we broadcast a story that we've come to believe is not true. It's a story that got a lot of attention. More people downloaded it than any episode we have ever done. This is um, Mike Daisy's story about visiting a plant in China where Apple manufactures iPhones and iPads and other products. He's been performing this story on stage as a monologue since 2010. We didn't uh, commission this story. We didn't send him to China. We excerpted the stage show that he's been telling in theaters around the country. We did fact-check the story before we put it on the radio. But in fact-checking, our main concern was whether the things that Mike says about Apple and about its supplier, Foxconn, which makes this stuff, were true. That stuff is true. It's been corroborated by independent investigations by other journalists and studies by advocacy groups. And much of it has been corroborated by Apple itself in its own audit reports. But what's not true is what Mike said about his own trip to China. As best as we can tell, Mike's monologue, in reality, is a mix of things that actually happened when he visited China and things that he had just heard about or researched, which he then pretends that he witnessed firsthand. He pretends that he just stumbled upon an array of workers who typify all kinds of harsh things that somebody might face in a factory that makes iPhones and iPads. And the most powerful and memorable moments in the story all seem to be fabricated. At the time that uh, we were fact-checking his story, we asked Mike for the contact information for the interpreter that he used when he was visiting China, who he calls Kathy in his monologue. We wanted to talk to her to confirm that the incidents that he described all happened as he describes them. And when we asked for her information, he told us, well, her real name wasn't Kathy. It was Anna. And he had a cell phone number for her, but he said that when he tried the number these days, it doesn't work anymore. He said he had no way to reach her. And because the other things that Mike told us about Apple and about Foxconn seemed to check out, we saw no reason to doubt him, and we dropped this. We didn't try further to reach the translator. That was a mistake. I can say now in retrospect that when Mike Daisy wouldn't give us contact information for his interpreter, we should have killed the story rather than run it. We never should have broadcast this story without talking to that woman. Instead, we trusted his word. Although he's not a journalist, we made clear to him that anything he was going to say on our program would have to live up to journalistic standards. He had to be truthful, and he lied to us. All this uh, came to our attention because the China correspondent for the public radio show Marketplace, Rob Schmitz, who lives in Shanghai, heard the story and had questions about it, had suspicions about it, And he went out and he found the translator. And although Mike told us that her name is really Anna, Mike now admits to keep us from finding her. Her name actually is Kathy, just like he says in the monologue. Rob ran the details of Mike's monologue by Kathy and learned that much of the story is not factual. Kathy gave Rob emails between her and Mike that corroborated her version of some of the events. Today on our radio program, we're going to hear what she said to Rob And then we're going to talk to Mike Daisy about why he lied to all of you and to me off the air during the fact-checking process. And we're going to end our show uh, with somebody who actually knows the facts of what happens in Apple suppliers in China, who's going to review those for us. I should say, I am not happy to have to come to you and tell you that something that we presented on the radio as factual is not factual.
All of us in public radio stand together. And I have friends and colleagues on lots of other shows who, like us here at This American Life, work hard to do accurate, independent reporting week in, week out. I and my coworkers here at This American Life, we are not happy to have done anything to hurt the reputation of the journalism that happens on this radio station every day. So we want to be completely transparent about what we got wrong and what we now believe is the truth. And let's just get to it. Here's Rob Schmitz. He usually reports for Marketplace in Shanghai. One of the big things that didn't sit right with me came early on in Daisy's monologue when he talks about arriving at the gates of the Foxconn factory. And I get out of the taxi with my translator, and the first thing I see at the gates are the guards. And the guards look pissed. They look really pissed, and they are carrying guns. I've done reporting at a lot of Chinese factories, and I've never seen guards with guns. The only people allowed to have guns in China are the military and the police, not factory guards. Later, Daisy meets with factory workers, who he says belong to an illegal union, one that's not authorized by the Chinese government. And I say to them, how do you know who's right to work with you? How do you, how do you find people to help you organize? And they look at each other bashfully and they say, well, we talk a lot. We have lots of meetings and we meet at coffee houses and different Starbucks in Guangzhou and we exchange papers. Wait, hold on. Rewind. We meet at coffee houses and different Starbucks in Guangzhou. Factory workers who make $15, $20 a day are sipping coffee at Starbucks. Starbucks is pricier in China than in the U.S. A reporter friend of mine didn't believe this either. He said Chinese factory workers gathering at Starbucks is sort of like United Auto Workers in Detroit holding their meetings at a Chinese tea house. I talked to other reporters over here. We all noticed these errors, and it made us wonder... What else in Daisy's monologue wasn't true? I decided to track down his translator, Kathy, who's a big character in the story. I could pretend finding her took amazing detective work. But basically, I just typed Kathy and translator and Shenzhen into Google. I called the first number that came up. I'm looking for somebody in Shenzhen named Kathy, and that's why I'm calling you. Uh, who worked with uh, a gentleman named Mike Daisy, and I'm wondering if you've ever worked with a man named Mike Daisy. Yes, he's from America, right? Did you work with him? Sure. <laughs> oh, okay, so that was you, actually. Yes. Her name is Li Gui Fen, but with Westerners, professionally, she goes by the anglicized name Kathy Lee. I tell her that Daisy put her in a stage show about Apple and Foxconn. I ask her if she knows about this. Nope. She knew Daisy was writing something, but that's it. She hasn't heard from him since 2010 when he hired her in Shenzhen. So I fly there to see her, and the next day, she takes me to the exact spot she took Daisy, the gates of Foxconn. You guys came here, what, in 2010? Right? Yeah, 2010. The night before, I sent Kathy a link to the This American Life episode with Daisy, and I brought a copy of his script with me to the gates. You know, I listened to the radio of Michael Daisy. I think... uh, it's okay he, he writes things, but uh, some of them he writes is true, some of them he writes is not true. <laughs> but uh, he's not telling the whole truth. She says a lot of details were exaggerated. Some of them were just plain made up. We start with their itinerary. 
Daisy makes it sound like he talked to lots of workers. In interviews, he said hundreds. But Kathy says it was maybe 50 people on the outside. They were just at Foxconn's gates for two mornings. And emails between Daisy and Kathy, which she gave me, show that the chronology of the story that Daisy tells on stage is a fabrication. In his monologue, he says he visited Foxconn's gates and then decided to pose as a businessman to get tours of factories. In fact, he visited Foxconn the morning after he arrived in Shenzhen in a factory called KTC Technology that very afternoon. It was all set up in advance. Daisy told Ira that he and Kathy visited 10 factories posing as business people. Kathy says it was only three. And then there's the guns. Did the guards have guns when you came here with Mike Daisy? No. Definitely no. So he wasn't telling the truth about that? Uh, you know, guns are not allowed to be carried by security guards. It's illegal. Kathy says she's never seen a gun in person, only in the movies and on TV, so she'd remember it. And there are more important parts of Daisy's story that she says didn't happen. The biggest is the children. Daisy describes meeting a worker from the iPhone assembly line. And I say to her, you seem kind of young. How old are you? And she says, I'm 13. And I say, 13. That's young. Is it hard to get work at Foxconn when you're... She says, oh, no. And her friends all agree. They don't really check ages. I'm telling you that in my first two hours of my first day at that gate, I met workers who were 14 years old, 13 years old, 12. Do you really think Apple doesn't know? In fact, underage workers are sometimes caught working at Apple suppliers. Apple's own audit says in 2010, when Daisy was in China, Apple found 10 facilities where 91 underage workers were hired. But it's widely acknowledged that Apple's been aggressive about underage workers, and they're rare. That's 91 workers out of hundreds of thousands. Ira asked Mike about this on the This American Life broadcast, and he admitted it might be rare, but he stuck by his story. I know that I met people that were there, and I know that I, that I talked to them. I mean, there weren't very many as a proportion of the total group. I talked to more than 100 people. I met five or six who were underage. And, and they were all in one group. Yes, they were. They, were, they seemed like savvy kids, honestly. Do you remember meeting 12-year-old, 13-year-old, and 14-year-old workers here? No, I don't think so. Maybe we met girls looks like 13 years old. Like that one, she looks really young. Right. Is that something that you would remember? Uh, I think if uh, she said she was sitting on a chair, then I would be surprised. I would be very surprised. Then I'd be remembered for sure. But uh, there is no such thing. She'd be surprised because she says in the 10 years she's visited factories in Shenzhen, she's hardly ever seen underage workers. Then there's the meeting, Daisy says, he had with workers from an unauthorized union, a secret union. Kathy confirmed that this did happen. Daisy told Ira they met with 25 to 30 workers in an all-day meeting. Kathy remembers two workers. She says maybe there were two or three others, and it was a couple hours over lunch at a restaurant. Daisy describes a bird-like woman who showed them a government-issued blacklist of people companies weren't allowed to hire. She remembers the blacklist. But she also remembers that it didn't have an official government stamp. 
anything government-issued in China carries an official stamp, so she wondered if the blacklist was real. Here's another part of that meeting with the illegal union from Daisy's monologue. There's a group that's talking about hexane. N-hexane is an iPhone screen cleaner. It's great because it evaporates a little bit faster than alcohol does, which means you can run the production line even faster and try to keep up with the quotas. The problem is that N-hexane is a potent neurotoxin, and all these people have been exposed. Their hands shake uncontrollably. Most of them can't even pick up a glass. The problem is that hexane is a, a potent neurotoxin, and all these people have been exposed. Their hands shake uncontrollably. Some of them can't even pick up a glass. Mm-hmm. Did you meet people uh, with, uh, who, who fit this description? No. So you, there was nobody who said that they were poisoned by hexane? No, nobody mentioned the hexane. Okay. And nobody had hands that, that, that were shaking uncontrollably? No. Okay. No. So where did this come from? Two years ago, workers at an Apple supplier were poisoned by N-hexane. It was all over the news in China. But this didn't happen in Shenzhen. It happened nearly a thousand miles away in a city called Suzhou. I've interviewed these workers, so I knew the story. And when I heard Daisy's monologue on the radio, I wondered, how'd they get all the way down to Shenzhen? It seemed crazy that somehow Daisy could have met a few of them during his trip. Kathy suggests that Daisy saw reports about this in the news and copied and pasted it into his monologue. Which brings us to the most dramatic point in Daisy's monologue. Apparently on stage, it's one of the most emotional moments in the show. It comes at this union meeting. Daisy describes an old man with leathery skin who used to work at Foxconn, making metal enclosures for iPads and laptops. He says the man got his hand caught in a metal press, and it was now a twisted claw. He says he got no medical attention, and then Foxconn fired him for working too slowly. And when he says this, I reach into my satchel and I take out my iPad, and when he sees it, his eyes widen because one of the ultimate ironies of globalism, at this point, there are no iPads in China. He's never actually seen one on this thing that took his hand. I turn it on, unlock the screen, and pass it to him. He takes it. The icons flare into view, and he strokes the screen with his ruined hand. And the icons slide back and forth. And he says something to Kathy. And Kathy says, he says, it's a kind of magic. No, this is not true. It's, you know, it's just like a movie (laughs) scenery. (laughs) It sounds like a movie. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 Very emotional, but um, not true to me. Kathy does remember this guy, but she says the man never told them he had ever worked at Foxconn. There are other details of Daisy's monologue Kathy says never happened when she was with him. The taxi ride on the exit ramp, Daisy says, petered out into thin air, 85 feet up off the ground. The workers with repetitive motion injuries. The factory dorm rooms, Daisy claims they saw. Kathy says they never saw any dorm rooms. The emotional conversation between them where Daisy touches her hand. Didn't happen that way, she says. 
Even the conversation where Kathy warns Daisy that interviewing workers at the gates of Foxconn wouldn't work. Of course it would work, she told me. She's taken other foreigners to Foxconn and other factory gates for years. It's part of her job. It always works. Now, of course, Kathy's memory isn't perfect. This was nearly two years ago, June 2010, and neither she nor Mike took notes. On some of these things, her memory's hazy. She didn't seem mad at Daisy at all. He is a writer. So I know what he say is, you know, maybe only half out then or less actual. But he is allowed to do that, right? Because he is not a journalist. I don't know. Uh, he, I, you're right. He's a writer. He's a writer and an actor. Yeah. Um, however, his play is helping form the opinions of many Americans. Um, and and, it's, uh, and, and uh, as a Chinese man, uh, sorry, as a Chinese, I think it's better if he can tell American people they choose. I hope people know the real China. Uh, but he's a writer, and uh, he exaggerates something. So I think he's not so good. <laughs> I wanted to talk to you about what you saw in China. It's a week later. I'm in my tiny Shanghai studio talking to Mike Daisy, who's sitting in This American Life studio. I was there, too, with questions of his own. Mike, how many factories did you visit when you were there? I believe I went to five. Okay, now you told Ira 10. I know. Okay. But now that I'm looking at it, I, I believe it is five. Kathy remembers three. Daisy also revises the number of illegal union members he met. He originally told Ira 25 to 30. Now he knocks it down to 10. Kathy, remembers said it was between two and five. I asked Mike about the underage workers. I explained to him that Kathy said... There weren't any. I tell them that foreigners often think Chinese people look younger than they actually are. Well, they did look young, but the girl I spoke with told me she was 13. And so I took her at her word, and um, that, that's what happened. Why would Kathy say that you did not meet any underage workers? I don't know. I mean, I do know that um, when we were doing the interviews... Uh, a lot of the people were speaking in English. They enjoyed using English with me. And I don't know if she was paying attention at that particular point. I, I don't know. There was a lot of wrangling. Um, Kathy was doing talking to people and sort of pre-interviewing. So, Mike, I mean, these are, my, you know, according to what you're saying, these are, these are migrant workers who are preteen or, you know, 13, 14 years old their English isn't going to be very good. You're telling me that they were speaking English to you in a way that you could understand. Well, I only know, I, only one of them was really talkative, and that was the main girl that I was talking to. So you're, you're, you have a clear recollection of meeting somebody who is 13 years old? Yes. And 12 years old? Yes, I, I, of a girl who was 13 and her friends who represented themselves being around her age. And so um, the spread there is just an effort to cover the ages that I suspect they are around that age. Mike, did somebody actually say they were 12 or, or, or somebody said they were 13 and then you looked at the group and you're just like, okay, maybe one's 12? Yes. One person said they were 13. The others were with her and those were the friends that I talk about. 
but none of them said that they were 12, right? Like you have one who gave her ages 13 and then the others didn't actually give their ages, but you're just kind of guessing. That's correct. That's accurate. Now let's, let's, let's talk about the hexane poisoned workers. Kathy says that you did not talk to workers who were poisoned by hexane and were shaking uncontrollably. That's correct. I met workers in um, Hong Kong going to uh, Apple protests who um, uh, had not been poisoned by hexane but had known people who had been and it was like a constant conversation that we were having about those workers. So no, they were not at that meeting. So you lied about that. That wasn't what you saw. I wouldn't express it that way. How would you express it? I would say that I wanted to tell a story that captured the totality of my trip. And so when I was building the scene of that meeting, I wanted to have the voice of this thing that had been happening that everyone talking about. So you didn't actually meet an actual worker who had been poisoned by hexane. That's correct. Hexane. Daisy has not just said these things in his show and on This American Life. The script of his monologue, which is called The Agony and the Ecstasy of Steve Jobs, was posted online for anyone to download for free and then perform. In the first 48 hours, 42,000 people downloaded it, according to Daisy. Since he appeared on This American Life, he's been in the press constantly, in newspapers and magazines. He's written op-eds. He's been on television programs and online news sites. He's become one of the most visible, outspoken critics of Apple. And he usually says things like this from an appearance on MSNBC a month ago. I saw all the things that, that, that uh, everyone's been reporting on. I saw underage workers. I talked to workers who were uh, 13, 14, 15 years old. I, I met people whose hands have been destroyed from doing the same motion again and again on the line. Uh, making Apple products. Yes. The thing Apple is, people believe he saw these things. And except for the N-hexane, Daisy insisted in our interview that he did see them. Talking to Daisy was exhausting. There were so many details I didn't check out, and even when he admitted that he didn't see what he claimed he saw, he'd qualify it with something. For instance, he admitted that he didn't go on the exit ramp with Kathy like he says in the monologue, but insisted that the whole thing did happen. It's just that Kathy wasn't there. He insisted that he did see the inside of workers' dorm rooms, but admitted, no, there are no cameras there like he claims in his monologue. There are only cameras in the hallways. It was never simple. He never just said, I lied. Does it matter if these things that, that you've said in this play are untrue? Yeah, I think the truth always matters. I think the truth is tremendously important. I don't live in a subjective universe where everything is up for grabs. I really do believe that stories should be subordinate to the truth. Then in parts of this, why didn't you tell the truth? Everything that's in this monologue is built out of the trip I took and the time I spent on the ground. So I don't know that I, I don't know that I would accept that interpretation. 
I don't know that I would agree with that. The morning after this interview, Ira and I called Kathy to see one last time if we could square Mike's story with hers. We asked her a bunch of questions. Were you and Mike ever separated at the gates of Foxconn? Could that have been when he met the 13-year-old? She said no. She doesn't remember any time when they were separated. Did Mike ever talk to workers in English? She said no. She doesn't remember that. And it's very unlikely the workers would speak English. Kathy says some things from Daisy's monologue were true. He was wearing a Hawaiian shirt. They did pose as business people in the factories they visited. And before they did that, Daisy did have a conversation with her about his plan. She says this conversation probably happened on June 2nd when she first met Daisy. He told her that he would pretend to be a businessman and he needed her help. Here's how he tells the story. And she listens to this and she says, but you are not a businessman? (laughs) And I say, that's true. I am not a businessman. And she says, and you aren't going to buy their products? And I say, that's true. I'm, I'm not going to buy their products. And she says, you will lie to them. And I say, yes, Kathy. I'm going to lie to lots of people. That part, says Kathy, was true. Rob Schmitz is the China correspondent for Marketplace, which comes from APM, American Public Media. Coming up, I talked to Mike Daisy about what happened during the fact-checking process with us and specifically what he was thinking when he told us that stuff was factual that he knew was not even close. That's in a minute from Chicago Public Radio and Public Radio International when our program continues. This is American Life. from Ira Glass. If you're just tuning in, uh, we have learned that a story that we broadcast in January that we thought is factual is not factual. This is Mike Daisy's story about Apple and China. So um, before the break, we heard Rob Schmitz explain what seems to be factual and what doesn't seem to be factual in Mike Daisy's story. Uh, when Rob was done his interview with Mike, I had questions as well. Uh, my questions were about the fact-checking process that Mike went through with uh, This American Life producer, Brian Reed, and I when we were first putting his story on the air. This process of fact-checking took us days. There were long emails and conversations with Mike. Brian spoke with 13 people who were knowledgeable about Apple or about electronics manufacturing in China. He combed through Apple's own reports about workers' conditions. He combed through reports by watchdog groups. And as part of all that, as I said earlier in today's program, when Brian and I asked Mike for contact information for his translator, Kathy, to confirm that she witnessed the things that Mike describes, he told us that her real name was not Kathy, but Anna, which isn't true. He told us that the cell phone number that he had for her didn't work anymore, that he had no way to reach her. And when I had Mike in the studio, I asked him why he misled us about all that. And Mike said that he didn't want us to contact her because he said... He thought that she did not want to be mentioned in his monologue and didn't know that she was mentioned in his monologue. And he thought that the idea of being named in his monologue would frighten her. When we asked Kathy about this, she says that that was not true at all. So I asked Mike the next logical question. Were you afraid that we would discover something if we talked to her? No, not really. Really? 
there was no part of you which thought like, okay, well, the hexane thing didn't really happen when I was there. And did you feel like there was something that we would discover by talking to her? Well, I did think it would unpack the complexities of, of like how, how the story gets told. What does yeah. that mean? Unpack the complexities. Well, it means it means that you know, just like, like the hexane thing. I mean, I think I'm agreeing with you. I mean, with the hexane, we approached you and asked you specifically about that. There's an email that that Brian sent you about the hexane. He he wrote Apple's 2011 report. This is their responsibility report. Acknowledges the hexane problem at two plants, one at WinTech and another at a logo supplier, but not at Foxconn. These workers you were talking to in the monologue, were they from Foxconn, do you remember, or from other plants? And and at that point, you could have come back to us and said, oh, no, no, I didn't meet these workers. You know, this is just something that I inserted in the monologue based on things I had read and things I had heard in Hong Kong. Um, but instead... You lied further and you said you wrote the workers were from WinTech, not Foxconn. Why not just tell us what really happened at that point? I think I was terrified. Of what? that I think I was terrified that if I untied these things that the work that I know is really good and tells a story that does these really great things for making people care that would come apart in a way where where it would ruin everything. When we were getting ready to go on the radio in the weeks leading up to it, I and Brian told you and we wrote emails, like I have an email here, Brian wrote you at some point with a like a list of like, wait, is this stuff exactly, you know, right? And included like the population of Shenzhen, like tiny little you know, like where'd you get this number from? And he writes at the top, here's a list of things I want to run by you. Some are questions I have just for clarifying facts. And in a few, I've suggested minor language tweaks for accuracy. This is like for numbers. Uh, and he writes, being that news stations are obviously a different kind of forum than the theater, we wanted to make sure that this thing is totally, utterly unassailable by anyone who might hear it. And then you wrote back to him. You said, I totally get that. I want you to know that, that makes sense to me. A show built orally for the theater is different than what typically happens for news stations. I appreciate you taking the time to go over this. And so, like, you un- you understood that, like, we wanted it to be completely accurate in the most traditional sense. Yes, I did. You put us in this position of going out and vouching for the truth of what you were saying. And all along, in, in all of these ways, you knew that these things weren't true. Did you ever stop and think, okay, these things aren't true, and you have us vouching for their truth? I did. I did. I thought about that a lot. And just what did you think? I felt really conflicted. I felt trapped. Did you worry that I would either say, like, okay, well, not enough of this is 
true in the traditional way that we need it to be or verifiable in the way we need it to be. And so like we can't run it. Or did you worry like, okay, you'd accidentally end up with two versions of the story and that would raise a question about like what really happened? Like was that the kind of thing you were thinking? The latter. I worried about the latter a lot more. After a certain point, honestly, Wait, if you're a certain point, what? Well, I started a sentence and then my nerve failed me and I stopped talking. Okay. So that's what you saw. So I'm working on it. It's coming. I can't say it. What's the general kind of area that it's in? Oh, I'll just say it. I'll just say it. After a certain point, I would have preferred the first option. That we would just kill the story and not do it on the radio. There was a point. And then since, since the show went out over the radio, did you worry that all this would come out? I mean, literally, like, I don't feel like that's a hard question. I'm just no, saying, not, saying, not, I'm I'm so saying like, like, since then, did you worry that, like, that somebody would talk to Kathy and she would contradict you or? No, I worried about it all the time. I don't know if this is a wise thing to be doing, like telling you it into this microphone in this conversation. But, yeah, I mean, I was kind of sick about it. I know that so much of the story is the best work I've ever made. You once did a show about James Fry. I did. Who's famous for uh, writing? Was it a? It's a memoir, right? Mm-hmm. That that he claimed was true, and then it came out that it wasn't true, and kind of famously went on Oprah, and she uh, went at him. Um, and there's a New York Times review of your of your monologue about James Fry uh, that says in it. This is New York Times. Daisy admits in the monologue that he once fabricated a story because it connected with the audience. After telling this lie over and over, it became so integrated into the architecture of his piece that it became impossible to remove or perhaps to distinguish what really happened. Is that what happened here? I don't think that's precisely what happened here because I do remember meeting this girl. And the man with the hand. Yes. Is it what happened here with the hexane? No, no, because I didn't, um, no, I made a choice to put that, you know, I made a choice to put that detail in that scene in that way. I have such a weird mix of feelings about this because I simultaneously feel terrible for you. And also I feel lied to. And also I stuck my neck out for you. You know, like, I, I feel like, I feel like, like I vouched for you with our audience based on your word. I'm sorry. So that was last week. And I told Mike if he had anything else that he wanted to say, he should get in touch. And over the weekend, Mike let me know that he did want to come back in. He had something he wanted to say. And on Tuesday, he showed back up at the studio and I'll be honest, I thought that he was going to admit more of the monologue wasn't factually 
accurate, wasn't truthful. But that is not why he decided to come in. He was sticking by his story, but he wanted to explain the context for what he did. And he said the context was this. He said when he was in China in 2010, there was a lot of coverage of workers' conditions at Foxconn because of a series of suicides there. And then, he says, while he was there, the coverage stopped. In China and internationally, the coverage stopped. The news cycle moved on. And he said that made a really strong impression on him, seeing the coverage vanish like that, seeing people suddenly not interested in the workers there anymore. And he said he wanted to make a monologue that would make people care. That was his goal. And everything I have done in making this monologue for the theater is bent toward that end, to make people care. I'm not going to say that I didn't take a few shortcuts in my passion to be heard, but I stand behind the work. My mistake, the mistake I truly regret, is that I had it on your show as journalism, and it's not journalism. It's theater. It uses the tools of theater and memoir to achieve its dramatic arc. And of that arc and that work, I'm very proud because I think it made you care, Ira. And I think it made you want to delve. And my hope is it makes, has made other people delve. So you're saying the story isn't true in the journalistic sense. I am agreeing. It is not up to the standards of journalism. And that's why it was completely wrong for me to have it on your show. And that's, that's a, something I deeply regret. And I regret that the people who are listening, the audience of This American Life, who know that it is a journalistic enterprise, if they feel misled or betrayed, I regret to them as well. Right, but you're saying that, that the only way that you can get through emotionally to people is to mess around with the facts, but that isn't so. I'm not saying that that's the only way to get through people emotionally. I'm just saying that this piece, in how it was built for the theater follows those rules. I'm not saying it's the only way to do things. I guess I thought that you were going to come in and you were going to say that more of it wasn't true because um, there are parts of it I just don't buy based on what, on what you've said. I don't believe you when it comes to the underage worker. Like It seems credible that your translator, if she saw an underage worker, it seems credible that she says that she would remember that kind of thing because it would be so unusual. That seems credible. And I don't believe you when it comes to the the guy with the twisted hand because your translator who was there doesn't remember that he said he worked for Foxconn and, and doesn't remember the incident with the iPad. And, you know, I might be more inclined to believe you, but you admit to lying about so many little things, the number of people who you spoke to, the number of factories that you visited. You admit to making up an entire group of characters who didn't exist, who were poisoned by hexane. And the only person who was with you said these things didn't happen. And so, and so when it comes to, you know, the underage workers and the man with the claw hand, it's like, I don't believe that that happened. All I can tell you is that I stand by what I told you before, that I stand by those things. That those things happen, those yes. specific things. And I, I, I stand by it as a theatrical work. I stand by how it makes people see and care about the situation that's happening there. I stand by it in the theater, and I regret deeply that it was put into this context in the, in, on your show. Are you going to change the way that you label this in the theater so, so that the audience in, in the theater knows that this isn't, strictly speaking, a work of truth, but in fact what they're seeing is really 
a work of fiction that has some true elements in it. Well, I don't know that I would say in a theatrical context that it isn't true. But I believe that when I perform it in a theatrical context in the theater, that when people hear the story in those terms, that we have different languages for what the truth means. I understand that you believe that, but I think you're kidding yourself in the way that normal people who go to see a person talk, people take it as a literal truth. I thought the story was literally true, seeing it in the theater. Brian, who's seen other shows of yours, uh, thought all of them were true. I saw your nuclear show. I thought that was completely true. Like, Like, I thought it was true because you were on stage saying, this happened to me. I took you at your word. I think you can trust my word in the context of the theater and how people see it. I find this to be like a really hedgy answer. I think it's okay for somebody in your position to say that it isn't all literally true. Do you know what I mean? I feel like actually it seems like it's it's honest labeling. And I feel like that's what's actually called for at this point is just honest labeling. Like Like you make a nice show, people are moved by it, I was moved by it. And if it were labeled honestly, I think everybody would react differently to it. I don't think that label covers the totality of what it is. The label fiction? Yeah. We have different worldviews on some of these things. I agree that I know, but is I really feel important. Like I, but I feel like I have the normal worldview. Like the normal worldview is somebody stands on a stage and says, this happened to me. I think it happened to them unless it's clearly labeled, here's a work of fiction. I really regret putting the show on This American Life. And it was wrong for me to misrepresent to you and to Brian that it could be on the show. Mike Daisy. I wanted to say before we leave this subject that I and my coworkers at This American Life take our mistake in putting Mike's story onto the air very seriously. As I said earlier in the program, when Mike told us that it would be impossible for us to talk to his interpreter for fact-checking purposes... We should have killed the story right there and then, and to do anything else was a screw-up. This is an unusual situation for us. Generally, if we are working with a non-journalist on a story, one of our producers is actually there for every step of the tape gathering and the reporting so we know what is true. And when we do our own reporting, we subject it to the same standards as other reporting that you hear on public radio. I was a reporter and a producer for the big daily news shows before I started this program. And we follow the same rules of reporting here that I followed there. We vet and we check our stories. And when we present something to you as true, it's because we believe in its factual accuracy. Which brings us to Act 3. Act 3, the news that's fit to print. So to end uh, today's program, all of us here at our show, we wanted to review one more time. What exactly do we know? about working conditions for the people who make iPhones and MacBooks and other Apple products in China. And to answer that question, we turn to New York Times reporter Charles Duhigg. In January, he and Times correspondent David Barbosa wrote the newspaper's front page investigative series about this very subject. Duhigg says that a lot of what we know about the conditions for Apple workers in China comes from Apple itself, which issues a report each year on this. In addition, there's a number of organizations in China that are either advocacy organizations or sort of watchdog organizations that have also gone into factories and have published reports. And so I can kind of walk through what we know and precisely how we know it. Great. So in 2005, Apple created what was called the Supplier Code of Conduct. 
And the supplier code of conduct said, these are the standards that we expect anyone who's making an Apple product to abide by. One of those, and in fact, the one that's probably most violated, is that they said that no one should work more than 60 hours per week that's working inside a factory that's making an Apple product. Mm -hmm. We know from Apple's own audits and the reports that they have published that at least 50% of all audited factories every year since 2007 have violated at least that provision. More than half of the workers whose records are examined are working more than 60 hours per week. Now, is that necessarily so bad? I mean, aren't a lot of these workers moving to the city to work as many hours as possible? They're away from their families, they're young, and they're there to make money, and they don't care. That's exactly right. You you know, when we talked, my colleague David Barboza, as well as a number of translators, have spoken to a number of employees in these factories, and that's exactly (laughs) what they say. And Apple says that as well. They say, look, one of the reasons why there is so much overtime that's inappropriate and in some places is illegal is because the workers themselves are demanding that overtime. Now, workers don't always say that. What workers often say is that they feel coerced into doing overtime, that if they didn't do overtime when it's asked of them, that they wouldn't get any overtime at all and that financially they would suffer as a result. Mm -hmm. So there are two stories here about how much people have to work. And there's a number of people that we have spoken to, the New York Times has spoken to, who have told us, for instance, that they had to do two 12-hour shifts in a row. So they're effectively working almost a full day. They're called continuous shifts. Um, So I think when we talk about the conditions inside the plants where Apple products are made, we can sort of put them into two buckets. There's basically harsh work conditions. People being asked to work shifts that are too long. People being asked to stand or sit in backless chairs. Um, People being asked to work in plants that are still under construction. Or people living in dorms that are provided by the companies, Foxconn and others, where they say that those conditions, the living conditions are harsh. Workers have told us that they are live in dorm rooms where there's anywhere from 12 to sometimes 20 or 30 people stuffed into a single apartment So it's very, very crowded, very, very unpleasant conditions. Mm -hmm. That's the first bucket of issues. And those are all kind of, we wouldn't like to work there. It sounds really unpleasant. I I do not think that you would find any factory in America where you would find those same conditions and you would not find any Americans who would tolerate those conditions. That being said, I think that China is a little bit different and that the expectations, particularly as a developing nation, of workers are a little bit different. I don't think holding them to American standards is precisely the right way to look at this situation. Mm -hmm. The second bucket, which is much smaller, is actually safety and life-threatening issues. And what we know about those conditions are isolated incidents that either injured or claimed lives. So, So one of the best examples of this was Last year, within a seven-month period, there were two explosions inside factories where iPads were being produced that killed four people and injured 77 others. Both of those explosions were caused by dust that's created through the process of polishing the aluminum that makes up the case of an iPad. Prior to those explosions, there was a report released by this group, SACOM, or Students and Scholars Against Corporate Misbehavior. An advocacy group. An advocacy group warning about safety conditions within at least one of the plants and saying there's dust here and dust is a known safety hazard. In all kinds of plants. In all kinds of plants, right. All all types of dust. You have to remove it or else it can explode. SACOM had sent a report, SACOM says, to Apple and to Foxconn weeks before this explosion occurred saying things need to be changed. 
The explosion that occurred in a, in a city named Chengdu that, that killed four people preceded by a number of months a second explosion that happened in Shanghai at a completely different plant in a completely different factory, but that has the same root cause. And so what people, critics of Apple have said is, if Apple had taken this first explosion seriously enough, they could have gone in and they could have required every company, every plant where aluminum polishing was occurring to improve conditions and they could have prevented or averted the second explosion. Yeah, you write in your article, um, you point out that the second explosion happened seven months after the first one, and you quote a, a man named Nicholas Ashford, who's a former chairman of the National Advisory Committee on Occupational Safety and Health, uh, which advises the uh, U.S. Department of Labor. He said, it's gross negligence after an explosion occurs not to realize that every factory should be inspected. He said, if it were terribly difficult to deal with aluminum dust, I would understand. But do you know how easy dust is to control? It's called ventilation. We solved this problem over a century ago. That's that's exactly right. That was what um, what Mr. Ashford had told us. Um, but again, these these two buckets. I, I mean, I think the important thing here is that some of these are simply very very harsh conditions, and some of these are life threatening situations. And and the the life threatening conditions, as far as we know, seem to be limited to a relatively small number of incidents. In the investigative series that uh, Duhigg did with David Barbosa for the Times, they note that in Apple's own reports. Year after year, Apple finds that violations of its own labor standards continue in its Chinese plans. Last year, there were some slight improvements, but these go up and down, and the problems include some very serious ones. And in their series, they quote an unnamed former Apple executive who has firsthand knowledge of all this as saying, quote, if you see the same pattern of problems year after year, that means the company's ignoring the issue rather than solving it. If we meant business, core violations would disappear. Then when I asked Charles Duhigg about this, he says that not everyone at Apple sees it that way. When I talk to Apple sources, they sort of respond to that in two ways. First of all, they say, we feel as a company we are limited in how many changes we can make. We can only push our suppliers so far. Others from within Apple, former Apple executives say, that's a self-imposed limitation. If Apple demanded X and said, we're willing to fire you if we don't get X, then X would happen immediately. One of the things that you and David Barboza write about in your series is, the, is you write about the tight profit margins for Apple suppliers. Could you just explain how that works and how that factors into this? Absolutely, because that has a huge impact on this. The, so Apple, Apple is known within the supplier's supply chain as being one of the most aggressive negotiators in terms of the prices that they're willing to pay. Because everyone knows that if you land Apple as a client – it helps your reputation enormously. So essentially every supplier out there wants to work with Apple because it's like a badge that they can bring. They, they can bring the quality. They can bring the volume. Exactly. Apple's the gold standard. As a result, Apple has this enormous negotiating power and they use it, I am told by our sources, very aggressively to come in and basically say, show us your entire cost structure, every single part of what you pay and what you and piece of your 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 internal economics, and we are going to give you a razor thin profit margin that you're allowed to keep. Now a number of companies and a number of activists outside of companies and other companies have said this is part of the reason why conditions are so harsh among Apple suppliers is because they literally don't have the money to pay for better conditions. That once Apple comes in and says, we're going to give you razor thin profit margin, that's when companies start cutting corners or they can't afford to hire more people in order to work on the line so that you don't have to work these long stretches. 
One of the most interesting things and one of the newest things that I think you pointed out in this series is that is that the cost of labor in an iPhone, if it were made in the United States, would be only about $65 more per phone. I mean, that's a lot of money, you know, if you're manufacturing stuff. Um, but with iPhones selling with hundreds of dollars profit in each phone, Apple could still make a profit if it were manufacturing in the U.S. And, and, and you have an entire article where you lay out that is not actually the main reason why these are made overseas at this point. That's exactly right. And, and that $65, that's the high-end estimate. Some people told us that you could – from a labor perspective, you could build the iPhone in the United States for just 10 extra dollars a phone if you're paying American wages. But wages – it, labor is such an enormously small part of any electronic device, right? Compared to the cost of buying chips or making sure that you have a plant that can turn out thousands of these things a day or being able to get strengthened glass cut exactly right within you know two days of this thing being due. That's what's important. Labor is almost insignificant. What is really important are supply chains and flexibility of factories. You want to be able to be located right next to the plant that makes the screws so that when you need a small change to that screw factory, you can go next door and say, give it to me in six hours. And they can say, here you go. Because if that factory was in another state or on another continent, it would take two weeks. It's the flexibility within the Chinese manufacturing system. That's what you can do in Asia that you can't do in the United States. There's a bunch of incredible stories you tell in that article. And one of them is you talk about the number of industrial engineers needed to oversee 200,000 assembly line, line workers. You say there's 8,700 industrial engineers that you need. And so to get this plant going, to get this particular operation going that you're writing about, I can't remember which one it is, you said it would take nine months to find those 8,700 industrial engineers in the United States. And in China, how long it took? 15 days. In that 15-day figure, the guy who told me that was also, also told me that that's basically because they kind of drug their heels on it a little bit. They probably could have done it faster. To get to the normative question that's kind of underlying all the reporting and all the discussion of this, the thing that we all want to know when we hear this is like, wait, should I feel bad about this? And, and, I, and I, you know what I mean? As somebody who owns these products, should I feel bad? And I don't know that I feel so bad when, when I hear this. So it's not my job to tell you whether you should feel bad or not, right? I, I'm a reporter for The New York Times. My job is to find facts and essentially let you make a decision on your own. Let me let me pose the argument that people have posed to me about why you should feel bad, and you can make of it what you will. And that argument is, there were times in this nation when we had harsh working conditions as part of our economic development. We decided as a nation that that was unacceptable. We passed laws in order to prevent those harsh working conditions from ever being inflicted on American workers again. And what has happened today is that rather than exporting that standard of life, which is within our capacity to do, we have exported harsh working conditions to another nation. So should you feel bad that someone is working 12 to 24 hours a day in order to produce the iPhone that well, you're that When you pocket? say it like that, suddenly I feel bad again, but okay, yeah. <laughs> I don't know whether you should feel bad, right? I mean, finish your thought. Should you feel bad about that? I... I, I don't know. That's for you to judge. But I think the way to pose that question is, do you feel comfortable knowing that iPhones and iPads and other products could be manufactured in less harsh conditions, but that these harsh conditions exist because of an economy that you are supporting right. with your I dollars? I am the direct beneficiary of those harsh conditions. You're not only the be direct beneficiary. You are actually one of the reasons why it exists. 
if you made different choices, if you demanded different conditions, if you demanded that other people enjoy the same work protections that you yourself enjoy, then then those conditions would be different overseas. Charles Duhigg. You can find the series that he did with David Barboza about Apple and China at the New York Times website. It's called The Eye Economy. You didn't like my decision to make the hero a villain. So my story's all in bad. They always make you feel so sad. You answered rather casually. You just record reality. You made it sound as though you'd given up so long ago. Find me a better ending But stay away from fact demanding It's easy to blur and twist Just tell it like it really is well, Our program is produced today by Brian Reed, senior producer Julie Snyder, and myself with Alex Bloomberg, Ben Calhoun, Sarah Koenig, Jonathan Menhevar, Lisa Pollock, Robin Semyon, Alyssa Ship, and Nancy Updike. Seth Lind is our production manager. Emily Condon's our office manager. Production help from Matt Kilty. Music help from Damian Grave and Rob Geddes. Special thanks today to Deborah Clark, who is the executive producer at Marketplace. When reporter Rob Schmitz found Mike Daisy's translator in China and learned that much of his story was fabricated, Deborah suggested that it might be a story that we would want to do on our show, and we are very grateful for that. Our website, thisamericanlife.org. This American Life is distributed by Public Radio International. WBEC management oversight for our program by our boss, Mr. Tori Malatia, and... I think this is a week I am just not in the mood for an extra quote here from Tori. I'm Ira Glass. We'll be back next week with more stories of this American life. PRI Public Radio International.